Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase entitled Tailoring Therapy to Fit the Whole Patient with OSA-Associated EDS, Excessive Daytime Sleepiness. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Axon. I'm Dr. Atul Malhotra. I'm a professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine and Research Chief for Pulmonary Critical Care Sleep Medicine and Physiology at UC San Diego Health in San Diego. Our learning objective for today is to develop real-world dosing and titration strategies that personalize treatment for optimal outcomes in patients with excessive daytime sleepiness associated with obstructive sleep apnea. Now let's meet with our patient, Alvin. Hi, my name is Dr. Atul Malhotra. Um, thanks, Alvin, for coming in today. It's good to see you. Tell me what brings you here today. Hi, Dr. Malhotra. I want to talk to you today about my sleep apnea. I've been on my CPAP for about eight months now. I sleep well within most nights, and I am doing somewhat much better. However, I still am very tired, and I was wondering if you can help me with that. Sorry to hear you've been tired, Alvin. Can you tell me a bit more about what you've been experiencing? Yes. So I am able to do more physical activity with my family, which is nice. And work is somewhat better. However, I still struggle with certain things. I tend to doze off at work, and although things are somewhat better, my mind is still very foggy, and I just can't seem to think very clearly. I drink a lot of coffee during the day, which helps a little bit, but not much at all. Well, glad to hear you've had some improvements. Definitely want to help you in a spot where you're feeling good during the day. Uh, I know you started some modafinil three months ago. How'd that help you? So I take my modafinil every morning, which I can't really tell if it's helping at all. I'm still very tired every night, every day. And I think I'm just going to say it's not working at all. Luckily, there's some things we can do. We can change your dosage or dosage times, which might help. We also have another medication called Solriamfetol, which we can transition you to and work on getting you the right dose. Let's talk about what might be best for you. Thank you, Dr. Malhotra. That sounds good. Now that we've met our patient, Alvin, let's discuss the case. Alvin's a 40-year-old black male with severe obstructive sleep apnea initiated CPAP eight months ago. He received some relief of symptoms and starting on therapy, uh, starting to get more energy and more quality time with his family, but still experiencing excessive daytime sleepiness during the day, tends to nod off while at work, computer programming, and uh, his work performance has been somewhat uh, down as a result of the sleepiness and cognitive impairment. He drinks several cups of coffee per day with limited effect, starting modafinil with no significant improvements in sleepiness. His baseline apnea hypopnea index is 34 events per hour. Currently, it's at three events per hour. His epiphoric sleepiness score is 13, body mass index of 31 kilograms per meter squared, and he's completely adherent with CPAP. Medications currently are modafinil, 200 milligrams in the morning uh, by mouth. In our last activity, we talked about excessive daytime sleepiness in relation to obstructive sleep apnea. Let's do a quick recap of what we know for those who are not able to view the last video. Excessive daytime sleepiness is reported to affect about 40 to 60% of patients with individuals with sleep apnea. Over 25% of patients succeeding on CPAP by five months follow-ups still have residual sleepiness. Those sleeping less than six hours have worse excessive daytime sleepiness. That number varies a little bit. Sometimes it's 10 to 20%. Uh, 25% would be 
sort of generous estimate. Patients with sleep apnea excessive daytime sleep minutes are at higher risk of mental and physical deficits, work and daily activity impairments, and lower quality of life. So when you have patients with obstructive sleep apnea of excessive daytime sleepiness, they can present in various different ways. Some patients will report fatigue rather than sleepiness, but they really mean a propensity to fall asleep. That can be a big deal. Some patients are falling asleep at the wheel, they're falling asleep at work, or they're falling asleep <laughs> in other kind of social activities. But we don't always capture that well. I think the upper sleepiness score is good, but not great. I recently had a patient tell me that some of the questions on there don't pertain to them. One of the questions is about falling asleep in a theater or church, and this patient told me they'd never been to a theater or church. Uh, they're often at the keyboard falling asleep, and that's not one of the questions in the upper score. So I think it is imperative to talk to patients about how sleepiness is impacting them. Sometimes it is an easy thing to kind of dismiss, saying, yeah, you're tired, everybody's tired. But in some of these patients, it can be quite debilitating. I think talking to them about how sleepiness is impacting their quality of life can be quite informative. In some patients, it can be highly motivating to seek therapy. So their uh, ability to tolerate CPAP or their willingness to tolerate CPAP is often motivated by changes in symptoms. And similarly, the risk benefit of pharmacotherapy is also heavily dependent on the impact of sleepiness on uh, the patient's quality of life and well-being. So for example, if they don't feel they're sleepy or they don't feel they're tired, then giving pharmacotherapy for fatigue or sleepiness probably doesn't make sense. But for other patients who say, you know, falling asleep at work, like Alan was telling us, that is really something we should address. And I think too often, We'll ignore the chief complaint and just say, well, you're using a CPAP, the numbers look good. And we need to talk to the patient, just make sure they're feeling well. There are some FDA approved medications. We have three treatments that are indicated for obstructive sleep apnea related excessive daytime sleepiness, two of which are modafinil and armodafinil. Let's briefly discuss these and introduce these to the audience. So modafinil shown on the left here, works through dopamine reuptake. You have 200 milligrams a day, occasionally some headache and nausea. It's reasonably well tolerated. Armodafinil is similar. It's indicated for excessive sleepiness in adults with obstructive sleep apnea. It also works through dopamine. It's a armodafinil, that is a, a stereoisomer of the racemic mixture, modafinil. You dose it 150 and 250, and the side effects are similar to um, modafinil. One issue that does come up that's important is in premenopausal women, both modafinil and armodafinil can interfere with birth control pills and can be teratogenic. So consider that double whammy. And I, I'm careful about using these medications in premenopausal women. We now have been introduced to modafinil and armodafinil, but what about efficacy? Let's take a look at some of the literature. So we see here a forest plot that summarizes a lot of different data. The zero line is uh, no efficacy and to the left of that is some efficacy. On the left favors modafinil and armodafinil. You can see this meta-analysis. The upper sleepiness score does improve on average by about two points on the scale with modafinil and armodafinil. This is a systematic review suggesting some benefits uh, to treatment. So if you look at the forest plot in aggregate, the Epworth improvement is about 2.21 points. And so if you were at 12, the baseline would be a little bit under 10 on modafinil. That's consistent with my clinical experience. There is some improvement with um, modafinil. The results are a bit varied. Alvin is a typical example where the improvements are, are modest or he didn't perceive much of an improvement at all. But you know it does vary. 
two points is important, but not a home run. So consider this a base hit. Uh, the CPAP improvement is on the order of three points. Uh, so the modafinil improvement is slightly less than that, although the two can work together somewhat synergistically. One dosing strategy that we have to help patients is to get the most of modafinil is to split, do split dosing. You can see here the data on the left, mean change from baseline and the maintenance of wakefulness test, sleep latency times on the right, percent of patients remaining awake for the first 20 minutes of both maintenance of wakefulness test sessions. There's a three-week randomized double-blind parallel design study, 58 patients, and uh, once daily dosing or split dosing are being compared. So one dosing strategy that we have to help patients get the most out of modafinil is split dosing. You can see this on the graphs here. On the left is the mean change from baseline, the maintenance of wakefulness task, sleep latency times, and the right of the percent of patients remaining awake for the first 20 minutes of both MWT sessions. You can see that split dosing it does have some benefits in terms of uh, the percent of patients and in terms of the baseline MWT sleep latency time. My clinical experience with this is a bit variable. I will sometimes give patients a split dose if they feel the modafinil is wearing off. In theory, giving modafinil late at night or in the afternoon or evening could it interfere with or disrupt nighttime sleep. There are some published data saying it doesn't do that, that it, you know, nocturnal sleep is okay if you take modafinil in the afternoon or evening. My clinical experience is a bit varied. Sometimes patients say if they take it too late in the day, they can't sleep. But in aggregate, I do use split dosing sometimes. It just varies with the patient. Now let's talk about Solriemfetil. It's one of the newer FDA-approved options for obstructive sleep apnea-related excessive daytime sleepiness. You can see here the mechanism of action is through dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake. People often start at a lower dose, like 37.5 milligrams, and then gradually ramp up uh, intervals at least three days to 150 milligrams. I'll often start at 75 milligrams just because I don't think the 37.5 particularly works well and in general is well tolerated. So I'll often start at 75, then ramp to, to 150. There are some side effects, headache and nausea, decreased appetite, insomnia, anxiety. Those can sometimes be seen. In general, I feel the drug is well tolerated. And in my experience, its uh, efficacy is quite good as well. But it has some off-target effects as well that are interesting. So some improvements in cognition have been seen, and I've seen that clinically as well. Some minor improvements in body weight have also been shown. And those are quite important because in some cases, you treat obstructive sleep apnea with CPAP, and people gain weight rather than lose weight. There's meta-analysis showing increased body weight with CPAP treatment in obstructive sleep apnea, albeit minor. But the fact that solariamphetol leads to decreased body weight rather than increased, to me, is quite helpful. No patient wants to come see their doctor for a treatment that might increase body weight. So I think diet and exercise, these things are imperative. But the off-target effect of solariamphetol can be helpful for some patients if they uh, come back a few pounds lighter, that certainly is uh, a welcome situation. So let's look at the efficacy here on the slide. There are several studies done. In fact, I was involved in some of the studies, full disclosure. The uh, group A and group B are shown on the graph here. The group A is a 40-week cohort. The group B is a one year. You can see some sustained improvements over time in the various outcomes, including the upper sleeping score on the above graph. And... Um, on the group B, you can see the Epworth score improves in the various groups and the sustained improvement over time. 
you can see a bit of a dose response effect where the higher doses of silver amphetol are associated with bigger improvements in the upper sleeping score. The 300 milligram dose, we don't use uh, as often, it's not FDA approved, uh, but there were some uh, patients that underwent that. In my experience, 150 milligrams is adequate. And you can see on the graph here, both for narcolepsy and for sleep apnea, there's sustained improvements over time. So you can see on the graph here, there's sustained improvements over time, both for sleep apnea and for narcolepsy. So you can see in group A and group B here that there's sustained improvements over time in the upper sleep in score. We're not seeing evidence of tolerance or tachyphylaxis, and clinically I've not seen dose escalation whereby people need more and more of a medication over time in order for them to get effects. It's early days of these medications, so maybe time will tell, but so far I've not seen dose escalation or tolerance. If people get improvements, they're sustained over time consistent with the data we're looking at here on this slide. There's some evidence that solar amphetol may affect body weight, uh, something of significance to sleep apnea patients who tend to be obese. And uh, we're going to discuss some of the findings here. Uh, this is a study that we published in the Sleep Medicine back in 2022. On the left is a solar amphetol dose in the x-axis. That's a 12-week result. And on the right is the graph looking at results at 40 weeks, again, with solar amphetol dose on the x-axis. You can see the percent uh, change in body weight on the y-axis. You can see that there's decreases in body weight, particularly in the high doses of silver amphetol. But even the lower doses, weight is coming down somewhat with this medication. And for some sleep apnea patients, that can be a big deal. Occasionally, when you treat sleep apnea patients, they gain weight rather than lose weight. There have been meta-analyses on CPAP showing some minor increases in body weight. And so this weight loss is certainly uh, a welcome uh, side effect. The guidance on switching from other therapies to solariamphetol has been somewhat limited. However, we have a real-world study that gives us some insight on dosing and titration strategies on these medications. So on the left, you can see solariamphetol initiation in obstructive sleep apnea. On the right, you can see solariamphetol initiation in narcolepsy. In gray, you see the transitions, that is, patients are on a different medication who transitioned to solariamphetol. That's pretty common in obstructive sleep apnea, perhaps less so in narcolepsy. The blue guys are the ones who are de novo starts, and those are quite common in obstructive sleep apnea and perhaps less so in narcolepsy. The green ones are add-on medications, and those are much more common in narcolepsy than in obstructive sleep apnea on the left. There are also some differences in the discontinuation process. So solariamphetol titration administration uh, dosing and titration strategies. Discontinuation approach is different in OSA and narcolepsy groups. The, in blue, you can see the people discontinued abruptly, and that was seen in the obstructive sleep apnea group on the left, perhaps less so in the narcolepsy group on the right. Some of them are tapered down gradually while starting solariamphetol, and some are tapered down before starting the solariamphetol. So some are tapered down gradually while starting the solariamphetol, some are tapered down gradually before starting the solariamphetol. Yeah, what I do clinically sort of varies with the situation. If a patient's really miserable, I'll often just add on medication to see how they do. If they really have no efficacy whatsoever, like what Alvin's describing, I might just stop the modafinil. There's no rebound or anything with discontinuing. And so my clinical practice does vary a little bit, consistent with the data we're looking at here. Yeah, I think it's important to look at physician considerations and characteristics for why we switch different medications. 
On the left is obstructive sleep apnea and the right is narcolepsy. Uh, sometimes there's really no major patient factors considered in sleep apnea. The severity of sleepiness is something important and perhaps comorbidity is important as well. Likelihood of adverse reactions is something hard to judge sometimes, so I don't particularly use that that much. Age can be a factor in some cases if you want to avoid certain medications that may be risky in the elderly, for example, though uh, that may be a, a more minor situation. Employment situation, these things can, can be important, concomitant medications if they're drug interactions, but these are not big factors as far as I'm concerned. When you look at the dosing and titration strategies, they are different by sleep apnea and narcolepsy groups. So on the left, you see obstructive sleep apnea here. On the right, you see narcolepsy. And in obstructive sleep apnea, people will start with the lower dose sometimes at 37.5 and then ramp up to 75 milligrams or in some cases, 150 milligrams. But in narcolepsy, people often start at the higher dose of 75 milligrams and then occasionally ramp up to 150 uh, for the stable dose. As I said, my clinical practice is to start at 75. I don't see much uh, safety issue or tolerance issues at 37.5. And the efficacy is pretty modest there. So patients uh, will often do fine if you start at the higher dose. So as I mentioned, I'll typically start at 75 milligrams rather than 37.5 milligrams. I don't feel 37.5 has great risk or great efficacy. And so I'll often start at the higher dose and my experience is pretty well tolerated. When I'm doing this clinically, though, I'll often tell patients that there's a range and 75 milligrams is good, but 150 milligrams may be even better. So I'll occasionally give patients the flexibility to take two of the 75 milligrams. And that way, when they come back to see me in the clinic, I'll have a good sense of whether 150 milligrams is a good idea or not. So that happens often. And in fact, it happened the other day where a patient came in saying, yeah, I started this and it was good. And I took two of them, it was even better. And so the next prescription was for 150 milligrams rather than 75. But you know, I tell them about the side effects or potential side effects so that they're not just going up and up and in the dose without any supervision. So if they go from 75 to 150, I tell them not to go over 150 without talking to me. And it's important to check their vital signs and check their clinical status before just ramping up the dose uh, unsupervised. So on the, on the left, you see obstructive sleep apnea. On the right, you see narcolepsy. And there are some adjustments made over time. The people who are de novo starting on medication uh, will have 55% uh, on the left and 53% on the right. They have fewer adjustments. The ones transitioning, perhaps by definition, have more adjustments. And the ones who use add-on therapies are also kind of 50-50 for sleep apnea and somewhat more for the um, narcolepsy patients on the right. So, so what I do clinically typically, as I said, I'll start at 75 milligrams. And if I see side effects, that's uncommon, first of all. But if I do, I might back off the dose, although I can't honestly say I've done that uh, in recent memory. And if they have partial efficacy, but not complete efficacy, I'll go up to 150 milligrams. It's rare that I have to back off because of tolerance issues or side effects. And occasionally I've gone over 150 milligrams, even though that's not FDA approved. We did study up to 300 milligrams in the research studies. Um, so have occasional patients are on bigger doses, but for the most part, they'll do fine at 75 or 150 milligrams. And I don't make a lot of adjustments beyond that. There are occasional patients I'll give adjunctive therapy like for sleep inertia issues or that kind of thing. But in general, patients seem to do okay on 75 or 150 milligrams of sulriamfetol. 
Okay, so we've learned a lot so far. Let's uh, revisit Alvin, who was our patient that we met. Uh, this is a 40-year-old gentleman with severe sleep apnea and CPAP. What aspects of Alvin's presentation do we need to consider? Well, first of all, he's adherent with CPAP. That's a big part of it. I often see patients who are given sort of Band-Aid type medications when their uh, treatments have not been optimized. And so for me, it's imperative to really optimize duration of sleep and CPAP adherence and residual apnea, all those things. What should we consider regarding Alvin's modafinil? Well, I wanna make sure he's taking it. I wanna make sure that he is um, not having side effects from it. I wanna make sure that he's not underestimating the benefits. Occasionally I'll have patients who are taking modafinil and maybe drinking less coffee and the one is offsetting the other. But in Alvin's case, I don't think he had much benefit. He was pretty clear on that. And the question might be what dosing, titration, other transition strategies should we use moving forward? Well, in this case, if I was going to start Solriamfetal, I would do so at 75 milligrams. And in Alvin's case, I probably just stopped the modafinil because he really had no efficacy from it and really didn't uh, feel it was doing much of anything. So I don't think stopping it would have any risk associated. There's no rebound or anything that's been reported. So thank you to our audience for joining me today for this wonderful program. Let's summarize our discussion with our SMART goals, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That is what I hope you take away from the presentation to apply to your practice. Utilizing efficacy data from FDA-approved medications and developing treatment plans for patients with obstructive sleep apnea-related excessive daytime sleepiness, and developing pharmacological and personalized treatment plans that address needs specific to OSA patients, such as cognitive impairment and obesity. Initiating the dose and titrating strategies that optimize outcomes for patients with obstructive sleep apnea related excessive daytime sleepiness. Today's CMEO briefcase is part of a three-part series of case-based activities that can be found in the Sleep Disorders Hub. I hope you'll check the other two activities in this series. The Sleep Disorders Hub, as these activities and many others on obstructive sleep apnea, excessive daytime sleepiness, idiopathic hypersomnia, narcolepsy, and more. And to receive CME or CE credits for this activity, Participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Participants will be able to download and print their certificate immediately upon completion. Thanks for joining me today. Be safe and take care of yourselves so you can provide the best care for your patients.